Okay. Let's uh, check check our levels. All right. How's your level? <laughs> my level is level. Cool. How's my level look? It looks very level. Awesome. I have no idea what I'm doing. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Friday, January 4th. I am Ben Orenstein. I'm here with CEO Thoughtbot Chad Pytel. Hello, everybody. How's it going, Chad? Good. So this is our giant year-end extravaganza. We're going to look back at 2012 um, through the lens of the world of Thoughtbot and uh, talk about what happened. That's right. I didn't bring my noise. Maker, though. Uh, that's too bad. So I, we'll insert some in post. Will you sing Old Lang Syne for us then? I don't have any idea what the words to that are. I think it's just Old Lang Syne. Oh. Just, you just repeat it. <laughs> over and over again? Yep. And mumble it? Yeah. I actually, then, I looked that up this year. I think it's, like, it's actually like a Scottish song. Yeah. It's like about old times and whatnot. Huh. Yeah. It's a retrospective. Okay. Much like this podcast. Okay. We'll insert that in post too. Sounds good. So we had some cool stuff happen this year. And how do you, how do you feel about the year overall? I feel great. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to 2013, but but I think before we do that, it's useful to look back at what we accomplished. Mm-hmm. So you're you're happy with how the year went overall? Yes, very. Would is it is it fair to say it's our best year yet? Would you think? <laughs> I I'm not very much one for superlatives like that. Okay, um, it was a satisfactory year. <laughs> yeah, satisfactory. Yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about I mean? Uh, want to start with profitability? Was it a profitable year? It was profitable. Um, we figured out how to be a little bit more profitable than usual. Um, and uh, so that's really nice. And we opened up the other offices, which allowed us to grow. And uh, part of making more money is growing. So mm-hmm. uh, that's working out well. We did. So actually, we didn't. Moving into the, the new office was last year, or was the year before? It was actually, the, um, yeah. It was, uh, it was. So that, that expense is off the books. I remember that was sort of a, a crazy <laughs> surprise expense. Well, it wasn't surprise. I mean, we planned for it, but with expenses like that, it's easy for them to get a little bit out of control. Um, fortunately, we were, were in a good position with the building where we weren't uh, paying for the majority of the work. We were just doing, paying for the extra stuff. Like when we wanted a nicer countertop, we had to pay for the countertop. Gotcha. So... Um, so, yeah, stuff like that you really have to manage uh, pretty closely when you're working on it. So we're about to do that again for the San Francisco office. And uh, um, so... Is price per square foot substantially higher in, in San Francisco versus Boston? Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, it's all, uh, We ended up with a slightly lower rate, but you can easily pay twice as much as we're paying in Boston mm. in San Francisco, especially in times when the market is like it is. In, in terms of the tech market, mm-hmm. uh, there's lots of startups, lots of people taking up office space. Mm-hmm. And we're in Soma, right? That new office? Yep. And it's yeah. being built too, right? No, it's yeah, not it's going to be existing. at 85 Second Street. Or second. Yeah. Cool. So drop by and say hi. Yeah. Dan Croak's there. He's a friendly guy. <laughs> Fellow tall, giant dude representing. So let's look back over uh, some of the things that happened this last year. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff is going to come from the blog. Mm-hmm. Um and then we'll sort of uh, riff on it. And all of the links to all the blog posts are in the episode notes, which you can see at thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash 30. This is episode 30. And yes, I am responsible for the non-restful URL. <laughs> oh, you heard that, huh? Yes, I did. I listened to all the episodes. <clears throat> I make the notes. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Um, cool. So uh, let's start in January. I know it's a weird place, but let's just let's try it. Yeah. So uh, we started with a redesign of Trajectory, which is our, uh, our project management tool. Yeah, Trajectory launched in 2011, and uh, we learned a lot over about the first four to six months of it being launched about how people were using it and using it ourselves. And, you know, there were a couple big things about the redesign. We completely changed the color scheme. Um, the, while the dark color scheme it originally launched with was really uh, stylish, it was not very as functional in real use uh, months in as mm. we wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And so um, we did that. And we also took it um, as far as certain ideas with the redesign as far as possible. Technical aspects of the redesign I thought were really cool is a lot of uh, select 
dropdowns that were all HTML in the original version. Actually, when you click on them now, you get a real native select um, dropdown, which is really neat. I've, we'd never done it before to this extent. What do you mean by you, native? Um, the actual select box. Mm-hmm. It's like a browser select? It's not yeah. A, or it is? Yeah. Okay. And so one of the things that's really neat about that that we found when we were exploring it was that the native browser select box can flow outside of the window. And and it's a subtle thing, but uh, we just we really figured that out and embraced it. And it allows you to make a fluid, completely fluid design and not worry about whether your dropdowns come up against the edge of your browser window or hmm. other elements, which you would normally need to do with an HTML element. Hmm. Uh, the select element can actually flow outside of the browser window in all the browsers. Hmm. So when you click on a select box, that is going to give you a drop down. It doesn't matter if your window is short either. Uh, it flows outside of your window. Right. It's pretty neat. Huh. So cool. if you haven't uh, noticed that, check it out. Yeah. Um, we also, in January, committed to uh, doing open source releases every two weeks. Has that been happening? Um, it did for a while. And it, actually, it wasn't every single uh, project. It was the main one. So if you check out the blog post, I, I forget exactly which ones it was, but like Shoulda, Factory Girl, um, um, releasing uh, some of those every two weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did that. Um, fortunately, we were sort of so good at it, I think, that um, the pace sl- slowed down once the number of features that actually needed to be done or the amount of bugs. Because mm-hmm. we also, at that point, um, and in February, we, I think we sort of really announced it that we were trying to get all uh, issues to zero. Right. And so um, it took some, you know, once we blew through a lot of the low hanging fruit, the releases did slow down throughout yeah. the year. And we sort of changed our policy around how we're using issues. Like it went from this is sort of a general queue of anything that needs to be done to more like these are like actual bugs or actual, like, I have a pull request with some code to make a change. Right. And feature discussion got moved to mailing lists. Right, yeah. Which I think is, is a nice improvement. I think it is. It, it's not perfect. I don't think anything that we can do would be perfect. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but it's working well. Like, the number of issues are down. And when you go to issues, it's bugs. Right. Um, it's not feature requests. It's not um, pe- someone having a random problem that ends up being their app problem. We are able to close that stuff out really quickly. Right. And, and I think that, that actually, it, those are like, the, the issue count is kind of like GitHub's like social proof in a sense, like, or it's at least, it's an indication of how well something's maintained. Right. So when, we, when, when you let that number creep up, it looks like you're not doing your job. Yeah, of. except on Twitter recently, I saw a conversation flare up around, uh, I think it was RBM or whatever, that, and, and they looked at the number of issues and some, the argument someone was making was that there were no issues and so it seemed like it wasn't being maintained. And I, 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 that, I think that's a dangerous mentality for us because we really try to keep our issues low. And that means that we are maintaining it. Yeah. And we take that stuff really seriously. Yeah. So maybe look at closed issues and see if like, they're getting churned through quickly. Yeah. is a better sign. Yeah. Cool. Um, so February, uh, saw Apprentice.io launching. Uh, I've had Gabe on here um, who was running Apprentice.io for us. Um, how is that going? That, that, that's a program that sort of shifted in its original vision to something a little bit different today, right? Yeah, so the actual thing that we're doing hasn't really changed at all. Uh, it's a three-month apprenticeship program where apprentices work one-on-one with one of the ThoughtBot developers or designers um, and learn how to be a developer or designer the way that we are. And um, so that came from... Uh, the internships and the apprentices we were doing, we opened it up to everybody and we started to take uh, employers as part of the network. Uh, So if we end up not hiring someone, one of the employers uh, would potentially hire them Mm -hmm. at the end of it. Um, So we launched that program and as Apprentice.io launched, if you go back and look at the blog post, the way it actually worked was that there was a monthly fee. So if you signed on as an employer, you paid a monthly fee. Um, into the pool, which went to pay the apprentices because all the apprentices are paid and we don't bill for their time. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and you'll see uh, when we talk about it again later on in the year, uh, we ended up not being able to sustain that program. We just couldn't convince enough employers to sign on and pay a monthly fee on the hope that they would be able to hire someone in the future. And so we ended up changing to a placement fee model where 
everything's free to be involved as an employer, but when you do eventually hire someone, you pay a, a traditional placement fee. Mm-hmm. Uh, has this been, when you consider the time that we put into this, has this been a, a profitable thing? It is, yeah. It's profitable for us, especially since we hire from the program. So um, when we hire an apprentice, it helps the profit we make from that apprentice becoming a real developer designer at ThoughtBot and becoming billable mm-hmm. uh, pays for the program. Right. And that almost seems like the biggest benefit to me is like the ability to find good people who are maybe not quite ready to join. Right. And that's really the origin of the program. We would interview people who were applying to us as a developer designer. And we'd say, this person seems really like a great fit, but they need, you know, they're not doing test-driven development now, for example. They seem like a great developer. They've been using Rails for four years, but they're not doing test-driven development. And we do test-driven development. We didn't have a place for those people mm-hmm. uh, who we thought might be great. And that was the origin of the program. So the program has also evolved uh, in that it's less geared towards beginners now. Um, we're able to do a great job for beginners. We often say that we're able to take in Apprentice.io uh, someone up an entire level. So if they're beginner, we can, in three months we can bring them to intermediate. Intermediate, we can bring them to advanced. Um, there are lots of great programs out there for beginners, mm-hmm. and um, it's better for our business reasons to bring people to advanced rather than to intermediate. We can get more value out of that, and the employers involved in Apprentice.io. Um, also, there's a problem with Apprentice.io of scale. Um, it's a one-on-one mentorship program, right. and I, I'm not convinced that uh, beginners don't learn just as much in a classroom environment that you see at the, some of the other uh, competing programs like Dev Boot Camp and all that stuff. They're mm. more of a classroom environment with uh, individual mentorship that's not 100% of the time, mm. and nothing has shown me yet that, that that's actually deficient for teaching beginners what they need to know yeah. that would prep them for something like an apprentice io that's an interesting insight um, which yeah. would then take them up another level to uh to advanced right and then once you because because the basics the basics are taught well in that environment but then afterwards you probably have more specific things you need to learn to improve your own skills which is where the one-on-one tends to shine right but and also um there you go from just knowledge to something being ingrained, like TDD. Like, you know, when you're learning TDD, and those of you who have done it know, it's actually hard. It's hard to learn it, it's hard to practice it, and it's hard to keep it up once you know it. And Because it really does need to be ingrained and change the way that you think. And that's where intense one-on-one mentoring, I think, comes into play. And someone to kick you if you try to not write the test first. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, Another thing that happened in February, uh, we sold Airbrick. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that we were talking about, well, we're going to talk to these guys, but we're not going to sell. And then it was like, actually, yeah, we are going to sell. Yeah. So I guess the price was right. Well, the price was right. But the, the other thing is is that you know we're not um, great at – we weren't running uh, Airbrake like a real uh, business outside of ThoughtBot. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't keep really close look at the financials of – Airbrake and all that stuff. So actually sitting down and thinking about selling it caused us to do that financial work. Mm. And once we did that financial work and had an offer, um, we realized that, well, it was sort of a situation we couldn't refuse. Mm-hmm. Not to mention that we truly believe that it would be better for the product to actually have a team, a business devoted to it. Um, and there were things that needed to happen to it that when you come to terms with it we would probably never do as mm. part of thought with it as part of thoughtbot mm. the the investment in it would just be too much yeah and so that team was saying we're going to make that investment in this and make it truly better hmm. it's interesting because so so we we ended up selling airbrake and then uh later actually the, the, a month later we open sourced copycopter which was another one of our our paid SaaS apps right um so it seems a little bit like we're sort of changing focus is that a fair assessment so in 2011, we actually launched three new products in the first quarter of the year. We launched Copycopter, uh, Radish, and Trajectory. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in retrospect, that was way too much. And we we did that because uh, we had the goal of launching new products. And I don't think that we really uh, vetted 
the project's products before they launched for real are they going to be successful in the way that we need them to be successful Mm -hmm. instead what we do was what we did was we launched them and uh let the and then tried to make them successful Mm -hmm. and i think we could have done work ahead of time to determine whether they really were going to be successful like we needed them to be but instead we didn't we did it in the marketplace Mm -hmm. in public and uh turns out it was not we weren't able to make it successful like mm. we needed it to be. Copycopter specifically wasn't even covering its hosting expenses mm-hmm. um, for the actual paid subscribers. Hmm. And so um, we're still very much interested in doing products, especially products for ourselves and things that uh, are, but we want them to be successful. And if things aren't going to be successful, um, we want to figure out how to make them successful. So for example, with Copycopter, clearly the way to take something that we thought was valuable um, to people, um, even though it wasn't going to be successful as its own SaaS product, mm-hmm. was to open source it. Yeah. Would you qualify trajectory as being successful right now? So by um, metrics of product success, it's it's not successful. It covers its hosting costs, and it covers right now the time that we're putting into it. Um, but it isn't uh, a significant part of our business. And to be honest, you know, there's nothing in any metrics that we have that are showing that it's going to become a significant part of our business. Mm. So, um, you know, that causes us to make hard decisions about trajectory. Fortunately, um, you know, we use trajectory for a number of projects and having a product management software, which embodies the way we think things should work is very much aligned with our actual business Mm. of, um, consulting and providing leadership about the way things should be done. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense to keep that going and keep evangelizing that uh, for the time being. And the other thing is, is customers of a software don't like to hear you talk about whether uh, it might go away or not. Yeah. So um, regardless of what happens with trajectory, there's a, there is a core group of customers which are always going to need to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. And so even if, you know, and there are no plans for this. Even if we did end up saying, you know, trajectory is not working as a business, um, we would make sure that anyone who is using and loving trajectory would be able to continue to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we learned that lesson sort of with Copycopter, and it worked out pretty well. Yeah, people seemed happy that they could still get it if they needed it. Yeah. I remember it was, I think we were sort of taken a little bit by surprise when we talked about um, shutting down slash open sourcing Copycopter. But there were actually like a core group of people that were like, no, I desperately need this. I use this all the time. Right. And it was, it was sort like, of oh. like, yeah. Well, and they were paying for it. Yeah. But, you know, and maybe, you know, but no one was going to pay hundreds of dollars a month. And that's what it would have taken for the number of customers that we had to mm-hmm. even make it make sense to to keep on continuing. Mm-hmm. Um, Got it. And so, you know, we're different. Like, I think that any traditional product company, um, you know, if, if it was just you and I as developers co-founding Copycopter, the company, we would have taken some investment hmm. and we would have uh, continued spending that money trying to make that successful, maybe changing what it was, pivoting, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not convinced that that's actually better. Um, because if it's not going to be successful, um, it might not be successful no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. And so I think the right decision was made there. Uh, we won't always make the right decision, but I think it was made there. Mm. Okay. So moving to March, uh, we opened up a Stockholm office. Yeah. Um, w- the actual blog post in March that Mike was moving to Stockholm, which was, uh, and that we were going to have a, a drink up and, uh, and we didn't officially start hiring and, and all that stuff until a little bit later. Gotcha. But, uh, but yeah, Mike moved to uh, Stockholm. Um, it took a while for his visa to come through, and that's one of the reasons why um, actually opening up the office and really getting started there took a little bit longer mm-hmm. than expected. But, uh, but things are going really well. I looked up to, uh, today, uh, January 4th. The sun rises at 8.42 and sets at 3 p.m. Yeah. That's that's pretty rough. Also, Karuna, uh, which is uh, one of the, the northernmost cities in that country, has 24-hour darkness today. 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 
Wow. So I don't think anyone lives there, though. So it's <laughs> I think we're going to get some angry mail now <laughs> from from, from all the Rails developer, the Rails Karuna. developer in Karuna. Yeah. So sorry about that. No, Stockholm is a great city, um, and uh, we're lucky to be there. And it's uh, it's really you know as we open new offices, you know we're not just opening offices anywhere. We're doing it where people want to live and work and be part of Thoughtbot. And uh, but they also need to be good markets for us, and we're figuring out what that actually means. But we're really comfortable being in places like Stockholm, which are not huge cities, so we can be part of the community and know everyone there and have an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stockholm is a great community, great startup community, great developer community, and design, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so we're lucky to be there. Cool. Uh, we had a couple 3.0 releases as well in March. Paperclip hit 3.0. Fattergirl hit 3.0. I mean, these are arbitrary. Yeah, and should have hit 3.0 in February. Oh, that's right. Sorry, should have. No, it's okay. And, uh, the, and those are sort of, I guess, kind of arbitrary numbers, but they represented, you know, we think this is ready for a, a major release at this point, I guess. Yeah, and if you go back and look at those blog posts, there's like, you know, they were actually long time in the works. It had been a while since a major point release mm-hmm. of Shoulda and Paperclip. And uh, so there's significant things going on there in terms of refactoring and all that stuff. And same thing with Factory Girl, although Factory Girl was under that two-week release cycle. So up until that point, it was having tons of releases. Mm. Um, so it went yeah, from like true. two to three really quickly at the beginning of 2012. Yeah, Josh has been cranking through Factory Girl stuff Yeah, big time. So um, have you tried Carrier Wave, by the way? I have worked on a project with Carrier Wave. Yeah, yeah. I haven't given it a shot. I hear a lot of people really like it. I think so. Um, you know, the what I used it for, uh, it was an existing project that already had Carrier Wave in it. Mm-hmm. And so, and I looked at it and it was exactly like Paperclip. <laughs> like it was being used in exactly the same way. There was no need to use Carrier Wave, but there was nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I didn't, I didn't notice any pain there. Yeah. I and mean, people sometimes ask me with like the, like a little tentative, like, you know, do you guys use other gems? It's like, yeah, of course we do. Right. Like, especially as consultants, like you're going on all the times projects that have made other decisions to use, you know, gems that we right. didn't write. And that's totally fine. Like we're very yeah. much not religious about like, we have to use our own internal stuff all the time. Right. And I, I think it's important to be humble about your code. Um, yeah. And like we created Paperclip back when, um, Attachment foo and 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 uh, file column and everything were under heavy use and paperclip was at the time the first really well written uh, bare bones um, file attachment plugin and it just became really popular and the code quality was very high the test suite was really great but it also it didn't use R magic which was a really important factor in it being actually usable without memory leaks because at the time uh, our magic was really um, hmm. um, uh, memory leaky and processor intensive so um, and because paperclip is so um, long you know it's been around for so long and it's used by so many people there's a lot in there it, it's complicated it's gotten bigger um and so it's. I still believe it's good, but I understand why people might first of all start Carrier Wave mm-hmm. and use it. Totally. Um, yeah. And so for those people, more power to you. Yeah, and like I mean, we're we keep working on it and trying to improve it and all that. But it, honestly, I would be shocked if something better never came along. Right. Like. The, right. Hopefully, the world keeps getting better and improving and all this, and like the old ideas of how to do things become outdated. And if you have the attitude that new stuff is inherently bad then you're 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 shooting yourself in the foot right um so no we love uh new stuff uh we might not necessarily embrace it right away like we're not going to say that's it paperclip's done everyone should use carrier wave Mm -hmm. um unless we truly believe that and i think in the times where that's been the case we've we've made those hard decisions Mm -hmm. um but i think paperclip uh, is here to stay for a while and lots of people use it and we we love working on it mm-hmm. cool so i have here listen we published i guess a blog post in april about the new boston office but that how late was that blog post uh it was really late it was like <laughs> almost a year or something yeah okay one of the reasons why it took so long is because we were waiting for the uh fancy pictures of the office which you can see on that blog post that's right to get done 
And uh, and then once we had those pictures, it just took a while for the blog post to actually get written. Okay. So uh, so yeah. Okay. I threw it in. I threw it in the notes so that people could go see those pictures. They're pretty. They're pretty nice. It's a, it's a yep. nice office. Um, also, so we we actually are touched on the zero GitHub issues um, ideal that right. we've been we trying to work for. That also we we announced that in April. Yeah. Uh, May saw um, the trail maps come out, and that's actually been surprisingly. People really like those. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the trail maps? Are the the trail maps? Um, so they've gone through a transition. They started because we were. Uh, extracting that documentation from Apprentice.io. Like, okay, if you're going to learn Rails, here's the two tutorials which are valuable, and here are the things you should be able to validate yourself against. Uh, you should know how to do this if you know everyday Rails or everyday Ruby, and then you know advanced Ruby if you know these things. Um, and so we started extracting them. They started out as a bunch of markdown files, um, which is pretty typical for us in a repo. Um, that's when we open source them. Um, over the course of 2012, we ended up converting all of those markdown files into um, JSON. And so learn.thoughtbot.com reads in that JSON and builds uh, nice uh, readable versions of the trail maps at learn.thoughtbot.com. And now the JSON is open source so other people can use that data in any way that they want yeah it's pretty cool and there's, there's a lot of trail maps actually i'm looking at the repo right now there's we got css code review design principles git grids html ios vim unix typography like it's it's all over the place right and i actually really like the format of these so it's so for like example for git um it lists some resources like what you'll use to learn it and then it's, it says you know when you're a beginner you should be able to and then a list of about 15 things. You should be able to view a diff. You should be able to create a commit, push to origin. And you know, same for intermediate Git and advanced Git. And I actually I love that breaking down of a complicated topic into right. tasks you should be able to do. Right. I think, that's it, a, that's, I think that's a common problem that beginners have. It's not just, okay, I, there's so much information about Git. If you don't know Git, you don't know what it means to know Git. Either. Right. Like, and so it's not just, okay, give me the one or two tutorials, which will be great. Uh, but tell me what I would know once I actually know it. Yeah, and it's a good. It's a selection of you know your everyday use will actually look like this. Therefore, you learn these things. Right. It's great to have that guidance. Right. Um, cool. I also saw a pretty cool looking uh, iOS app for this. Is that released yet? No, it's not released yet. We're currently working on it, and the the iOS app is going to just be the trail maps, mm-hmm. um, and allow it's going to allow people to interact with the trail maps in a way that they're not able to now which I think is going to be really cool. Cool. Are we charging for that app? Yet to be determined. No, okay. I don't think we're even going to charge. Oh, uh, we totally should. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> we'll take that offline. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so Trail Maps came out. Um, we also did, uh, well, talk about Humans Present. So, it, yeah. so in May, we did this thing called Humans Present Refactoring, and it was the first sort of video um, thing that we did and and my vision for it was that there was a lot of screencasts out there that were really great don't get me wrong but they didn't show people they just showed a screen Mm -hmm. and so um, my thinking was if you could sit two people down together be able to record the screen but also record the people you'd have something compelling and so we did a series of videos called humans present the first one was in may and we did it with refactoring you can still get it online but it was really the genesis for what eventually became our online workshops. And I can say now that the whole point of those videos was to figure out what worked, how to produce things, how to edit, uh, how we could do that within the context of ThoughtBot, and what we could produce that would be unique. Mm. And so we haven't done any more of those videos. We did, I think, three of them. Uh, we haven't done any more because they they not only were good content, but they they taught us what we were hoping to learn from that mm-hmm. uh june was a big month actually so backbone js on rails which is our ebook about using backbone js with rails uh, hit 1.0 yeah so that means it was copy edited it was done we had everything, all the content in there we had a technical editor go through that yeah and we we a copy editor copy too. editor yeah. yeah and uh that was someone that we hired um he uh he was really great and i taught him how to use git and so because the book is all marked down um so it hit, hit 1.0 that's been that book has been a, a very big success for us it has it much more success it was the first thing that we ever self-published like that 
um, we really had, you know, not very many expectations for what it would be, but it's been really successful. I think we struck it sort of lucky that Backbone uh, is as popular as it was. But that's one of the reasons why, I mean, we at the time, 75% of the projects we happened to be working on were using Backbone. And we said, well, there's a learning curve here. Mm-hmm. We have to educate everyone at ThoughtBot about this over and over again. And, you know, there's something to like 75% of the projects using it. We think this is probably going to be popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's worked out well. And it helps that the book is actually helpful. And I think it helps that. <laughs> yes, it does. I, it helps I, it, it doesn't suck. Right. It helps that it doesn't suck. It also helps that we didn't just make a generic Backbone book. Right. Uh, we made Backbone JS on Rails, and which is totally in our niche. Right. And um, and so we're offering something that's compelling to people. You want to throw out any revenue numbers on that bad boy? Um, you know, I don't even. I I don't have updated numbers. I'm, I'm not not. Uh, not, but it's it is, um, you know, we've had over a thousand people buy it, um, and the uh, you know you can see the price for yourself. It's forty nine dollars, yep. uh, and um, so it's been pretty good. Cool. Uh, also in June, we opened uh, the office in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, so Dan Croak moved to San Francisco, um, and um, you know things have unlike Stockholm. There's so, you know, San Francisco is a big city. There's a lot of stuff there. Um, Fortunately, uh, you know, so many startups use Rails. Uh, The community and the ecosystem in San Francisco is crazy. And, um, you know, we didn't, it was the first office we were really opening. So we announced Stockholm first, but San Francisco uh, really was able, because it's in the U.S., was able to get on the ground running much yeah. faster. How many people are in San Francisco now? Uh, so as of today, I think it's 10 people. Wow. Versus like 20 in Boston now or something like that? Um, yeah, 24 in Boston. Wow. Yeah. So that pretty quickly grew to about half the size of an office that's been here or a, a company that's been here for eight or nine years. Yeah. And we have, um, you know, we expect Bo- uh, San Francisco to be as big as Boston office mm-hmm. um, within about 18 months. Uh, so it's it was it was interesting to me um, when we had like our holiday party this year. So we brought in the Stockholm guys to Boston, but San Francisco did their own thing. Right. And it feels like a little bit more like they're their own entity. Yeah, I I actually that is not my preference. My preference would be to bring everyone together. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, we also it's our preference to involve everyone's families and significant others in the end of the year party. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're looking at a proposition of coordinating travel and schedule for 20 people to come to Boston. Right. It just, it really doesn't make sense. So while it's not my preference, I think, you know, we have to make do and I'm hoping that we can do something, um, about that in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, because part of the idea is to have individual local offices working, doing local work, with local clients, but to feel like you're part of something bigger that you're, you know, you're not reliant on someone three time zones away for the work you're doing, but for the culture and the interaction and education and learning and getting better and all that stuff. Um, it's all supposed to be one. And I think events like the end of the year thing, or we do Cape code in the summer. Um, it would be better if we could integrate those. Hmm. One of my personal goals is to get out there because San Francisco is great and I want to meet those people. Yeah, I'm going at, um, at the end of January. I'll be in San Francisco. I'm going to a, Sim- a SimConf, mm-hmm. uh, which is in San Jose, and then I'll be spending a couple of days at the San Francisco office. Cool. Is that your first time in the office out there? It'll be the first time in the WeWork office, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, also in June, we had the first podcast episode. Yeah. Yay! Yay! Podcast! Yay! Woo! <laughs> Clearly the highlight of the year. Yeah. Um, I can say without any bias whatsoever. Right. That it's easily the most important thing we've ever done. Yes. Easily. <laughs> yeah. So we've done 30 since then. Yeah. We've just been cranking them out at least one a week, usually, or often multiple to a week to sort of cover vacations or things like that. Yeah. Days off. We did about five in a day at RubyConf, I think. Yeah, we did five in one day. Yeah. Yeah. It it's, was pretty intense, and I appreciate the hard work you put into that. Yeah. Uh, it's It's been a lot of fun. Good. I remember we talked about this at first, and like I was pretty... I wasn't like super sold on the idea. 
I wasn't right. really excited about it. Um, but it's turned out to be, um, for me personally, like really gratifying. Like I, I feel very lucky that I get to meet really interesting people that, you know, Rubyists and entrepreneurs and all this and talk to them and build this relationship. And, uh, you, as you mentioned at the at the holiday party this year, it, this seems to be a thing that, for whatever reason, a lot of people are come in contact with. Like right. I'm, I'm I'm meeting more and more people that have heard the podcast yeah. versus you know some other way of contacting the company. Yeah. Uh, so that's cool for me too, or cool right. for everybody, but but especially for me as a little bit of a trip. Right. Some and guy. I've what? wanted to do a podcast forever. Uh, yeah. You know, it took a long time to figure out how we could do it, not only in terms of like the logistics of doing it, but what the format would be. Yeah. Um, and it turns out it was sitting under our nose the whole time. It, the format of the podcast is essentially the format of our blog. It's stuff that interests us in sort of a curated, high-quality way. Mm-hmm. And it's not limited to just talking about development or just talking about one particular thing. It is design, development, and business. Mm-hmm. And it is... Um, presented in a way which is hopefully really interesting to people mm-hmm. and I, I think also we owe uh, edward lovell who yes, the, edits yeah, the podcast a, a big you know thank you for helping be part of that push right uh so he was an apprentice with us at the time and was a is a, is a berkeley grad or at least went yeah. to berkeley i don't yeah and uh sort of handled the initial like how do we actually get this right. sound to so people. he's familiar with recording and editing and he uh, you know said here buy this mic buy this pop filter by this everything yeah um and he also edited the five by five podcast which i listened to um and so you know i knew that we could he was the you know the 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 way that all the logistic stuff got resolved Mm -hmm. and uh, even though he's moved on from his apprenticeship and not here we've been able to carry that forward Mm -hmm. and he still edits still edits edits. hey edward how's it going Um, yeah, so I think maybe just a quick thank you to everybody for listening and, and supporting and sending in questions and all that. And uh, it's been a lot of fun broadcasting to you guys. And we intend to continue. The plan is just keep cranking them out. And as long as they stay good, keep going. Yeah, and we're, we've done two things towards you know that were new for the podcast this year. We mm-hmm. went to RubyConf and we recorded a bunch of episodes from there. That was a great opportunity to get uh, not only the conference vibe, but to talk to a bunch of people who we wouldn't normally be able to talk to. And then we've also done our first remote. So people may not know, but one of the reasons why we're able to achieve the high quality of recording that we're able to is, um, and also I think a sort of general dynamic of the podcast being lively is because we're recording it in person. So we record it in person in our office, but we've done two remote podcasts so far. Um, The one with Gary and the one with David uh, were remote. Mm-hmm. They obviously weren't in our office. And so we're figuring out how to do that. And we're hoping that that will allow us to bring even more interesting, exciting people in the new year. Yeah. And I thought that was a pretty cool technique. This is apparently an established thing called a double ender, where we record locally on our end and uh, I'm Skyping with the person, but they're recording locally. We don't record over Skype. Right. And then they send us their recording and Edward does his magic and stitches it together. Right. And that way you can, you know, we have this remote ability, but the sound quality is still good, which was important to us because you and I had talked like there's podcasts that I stopped listening to because I just couldn't, I couldn't handle how annoying it sounded. Right. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, with that in mind, if you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, get in touch at uh, thoughtbot.com slash contact. Hmm. Cool. Uh, so moving on, how about August? We launched Learn. Yeah, so um, this is a project that I worked on. Um, and what Learn really was was um, encapsulating everything that was our educational uh, stuff, including the blog, into one site. Because up until that point, we had uh, a bunch of different things going on so it was taking the trail maps and putting them onto a site uh, incorporating the content from the blog onto a site so when you click on a tag on something on the blog you actually go to learn so if you click on the rails tag on robots.thoughtbot.com you actually go to learn.thoughtbot.com slash rails and you get the rails trail map as well as other content from the blog that has been tagged with rails Mm -hmm. and you see for example, our workshop on Rails. 
and you can register for that there. Mm-hmm. So it was really bringing everything. We're not done yet. Like the, if you go to playbook.thoughtbot.com, which is really a resource that we have, that's not part of Learn yet. So we're still in the process of moving that stuff in. But now we have a place that allows us to do that. We didn't really have the vision for one central place before, and we have that now. Mm-hmm. It's really exciting. We actually launched with a completely different design than you see when you go to the site now. And we really liked the design. It was sort of a, um, inspired by what ThoughtBot.com looks like. It was really cohesive with that. Um, and it was really uh, interesting functionality, a big search box, all AJAX-driven search. And then uh, we did usability testing on that, which we love to do. Um, and really lightweight usability testing in our office here with people from Craigslist. And we found that it was just really bad for usability. Mm-hmm. No one could find what they were actually looking for when we asked them to look for it and all that stuff. So we, uh, we devised a bunch of series of changes that would do that. Uh, and that caused the look and feel of it to also change. And we launched that. Um, we didn't really announce that when we, when we changed it, it was just sort of an iteration upon what was there. Yeah. Um, I'm loving, I love the new design. Like it's, it's a little bit on the flatter side, like right. no gradients and all that, but it's, it's, it's really nice. I, I like it too, although it's not my personal preference. Okay. And I think that was a really valuable lesson for me um, to because it's something that I talk about in – we talk about it in the playbook. I, I really harp on it on the in-person playbook workshops I give and the video workshops is not to design by personal preference hmm. or at least when you do realize that you're doing it. Um, and so I realize now that we were uh, – you know, even though l- learn is not my personal preference and um, – it's a great design, and I do like it. And uh, we did another usability testing session last week on it. And, uh, you know, everyone coming in absolutely loved the design, and they were able to, you know, spontaneously they said they really liked it, and they were able to use it in such a way that it was really intuitive for them. Awesome. So that's really great. It's not perfect. We have a lot of work to do, obviously, Always. especially on certain things about finding courses and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, it's working Who do we really have to well. thank for the design? Who, was, who worked on that? So a bunch of people worked on the initial uh, design, and, uh, but Ben Whitlow was the primary person who did the redesign work. Sure. Cool. So kudos to Ben. Yeah. Um, awesome. So September Bourbon Neat hit version 1.0. Yeah, which is exciting. That's been a, a sort of a, a uh, bourbon's been a huge thing for us. We've had Phil on. Uh, we got a, a good discussion about bourbon, and then Bourbon Neat is a what is Bourbon Neat? Is a that grid the grid framework. system, right? Okay, yeah. that's the grid. Yeah, yeah, that's a grid framework that doesn't mess up with your semantic markup, right? That's right. Yeah, cool. So that's really important for everything about bourbon. Like the the sort of the original core idea for bourbon was that like you know when you want to do border radius, it shouldn't be some custom CSS thing. It should just be using the power of SAS to just say border radius and have it output all the browser-specific stuff to make that happen. So as close as possible to CSS3, as close as possible to the semantic standards without messing up your markup and all that stuff. A little bit like jQuery for CSS. Yeah, and neat is the grid part of that where you you don't have to put anything, like you're not saying column in your classes, those kinds of things. Yeah. You're just putting your normal markup or not even using classes at all. You're able to use CSS to target specific uh, elements and give them a grid. Mm-hmm. And so it moves everything where it should be, which is into the presentation, layer, the CSS, as opposed to the markup. Totally. Good stuff. So check that out. Um, also, uh, we launched online workshops in September, which is another sort of big milestone, I think. Yeah. Uh, um, it was a long time coming. We've been asked, people all over the world have been asking us to do our workshops, um, you know, online, and we've said we didn't know how to do it. Um, The workshops in person are two days. They are all based on entirely live coding together, a real Rails app or in a real Rails app. And we just didn't feel like, first of all, if we did them remotely, that people would get you know, if I'm sitting, uh, you know, sitting in your living room for eight hours a day for two days, intently coding along with someone, you might learn, but it's not going to be enjoyable for the teacher to sit there uh, with headphones on. It's not going to be enjoyable for you. And I, we just didn't really feel like you would actually learn what you can in the in-person workshop. Mm-hmm. So it took us a while to figure out 
how we would bring those workshops online. And it turns out that uh, we decided it needs to last an entire month. And so the same content, but at a pace which is easier to digest on your own time, Mm -hmm. uh, reinforced with one-on-one interaction with the teacher through video and live chat and um, also uh, office hours on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. And we've run run, run a couple of these now? Yeah, so we've launched our Design for Developers course and the Test Driven Rails class, and they've uh, both run once. And the uh, Design for Developers course is actually starting today, uh, the second version of it. Uh And so... um, How's the feedback been? It's been great. Um, People really like it. And the important thing to us is that people learn. So that has been... And get that it's valuable to them. So we have a money-back guarantee... It's not valuable to someone. You just tell us and we refund your money. Um, that's really important to us. It's not worth doing it. You know, we're not really doing it to just build successful business. We're doing it because we really care about teaching people. And so um, if we weren't teaching people, we wouldn't be doing it. So for the Design for Developers workshop, we're doing something. Uh, for the second version of it, we're incorporating uh, live. The office hours are going to be over video. They've just been text-based chat in campfire and we're going to be using google hangouts for uh this iteration of the class nice so we're hoping that that makes it even more lively and and participatory i think so we should do a video podcast (laughs) Um, so people could see that we're sitting right next to our elevator in a hallway (laughs) yes (laughs) they could see our beautiful recording booth quote unquote um so november saw um another office opening or at least announced uh the colorado office yeah and that's uh, Desi McAdams is uh, starting that. Yeah, and I I would encourage everyone to check out that post. Um, you know, and you know, we've known Desi for a long time, and the opportunity to get her to join Thoughtbot and start a new office in what is a great market for startups, mm-hmm. uh, Boulder, Colorado, was something that we really couldn't pass up. Is it Boulder or Denver that the we've decided on? Has it been decided? Um, so we actually it has been decided. Uh, we're actually the answer is both. Um, we have taken a desk in Galvanize, which is um, a um, co-working space in Denver. And if you went to RubyConf and went to the after party, that's actually where where it was. Mm. That big uh, open space and with all the desks and everything. Um, and we've also uh, and that will be like a remote desk that we have in Denver that allows us to hold events and workshops and be part of the Denver community. And Boulder is less than an hour away from there. And that is where our main office, our main space will be. And we're going to be at a co-working space called Fuse uh, there, which is just opening up. It's not even open yet. Um, awesome. That's another office I'm excited to visit. I went out to Boulder for Rocky Mountain Ruby and like yeah. loved it. Yeah. So I want to get back out there. Yeah. So Boulder is where everyone who wants to work at ThoughtBot wants to be. It's where the startup activity is. It's all, all that stuff. But there's business opportunity in Denver, and we expect clients to be there. So it will be helpful to even just be able to use a conference room. And so our main office will be in Boulder, um, but but we'll have the satellite in Denver. Cool. Uh, So are we hiring for that office right now? We are, yeah. All right. Um, Both developers and designers. Cool. So thoughtbot.com slash jobs. Awesome. How many different ThoughtBot sub-properties can we plug in one (laughs) podcast? Um, cool. And then December, actually another big, pretty big announcement. We, uh, we're writing another book. Yeah. Ruby science launch. You can go to it at rubyscience.com. I read another one. <laughs> oh yes. Yes. Um, and basically, you know, this is legit, like technically speaking, it's everything that we learned about how to do a book self-published with the backbone book. So it's when you buy it, you get access to a GitHub repo, which has the example applications in it as well as the actual source code for the book, as well as the released version. So EPUB, Mobi, HTML, PDF, all in an actual GitHub repo that you get access to. And so when we make a change to it, um, you get immediate access to it. You can follow it on GitHub. You can fork it. You can submit changes. And we use GitHub issues to talk to all the readers and get feedback from them, as well as just like questions. So that's one of the reasons when people ask, why are your books $49. Uh, Part of it is that you don't just get a book. You don't just get the example application. You get complete support from our team 
for any question for the Ruby Science Book, it's any questions you have about Ruby or Rails. Um, so we use GitHub issues for that. Mm-hmm. So, and if um, you buy now, we'll throw in a MacBook. <laughs> Actually, uh, until the until January thirty first, it's twenty percent off both individual and company licenses. So um, it's less than forty nine dollars. It's twenty percent off that. Cool. So strike while the iron is cheap. Yes. Cool. So that that's. That's a that takes good, us the, through the year, it right? It does. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good list of things. Yeah, and we didn't even really talk about like the actual content posts. On the, these are sort of just all the announcements. But I'd encourage someone to sort of go back. You know, uh, some of the most popular posts on the blog have nothing to do with our announcements. They have to do with stuff that we wrote. Like so, like Mountain, when Mountain Lion was released, we uh, did a really popular blog post on getting Ruby and Rails. Uh, working on any, anything on Mountain Lion, we tend to do that for every OSX release. Mm-hmm. Other posts like that. Yeah, there's good stuff on there. Yeah, it's worth flipping through the show notes if you're if you're interested. Um, so we had a couple. We asked. We uh, put out a call for questions and got a handful of interesting questions that I think we should tackle. Yeah, great. Okay, so the first one is from uh, Bubakar Diallo, and he asks, "How do you assess a good developer? What are your metrics slash benchmarks?" So I, I judge by height. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a joke, uh, Mr. HR representative. Yeah, right. uh, we don't uh, discriminate on the basis of height. <laughs> <laughs> right. Mr. Lawyer for rejected applicant. Yeah. Um, now, I, I, I'm, I guess I'm first interested in your take on this. because So part of what we do, for those who don't know, our process involves uh, not just the management team, uh, but involves developers at ThoughtBot. Yeah. And so... Uh, you know, there's two rounds to it. There's a technical interview, and in addition to a non-technical interview, there's the technical interview, and then we do pairing uh, at the end. So when you're pairing with someone at Thought, you know, who's a potential developer yeah. at Thoughtbot, what do you what do you judge them on? That's a good question. I, I think you're the first guest who's turned a question back around <laughs> on me. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about as you asked me. I don't have a great answer for that. I don't think I have specific like metrics or benchmarks. It's more of a general feel. Like I, mm-hmm. I think pairing is an awesome, is extremely high bandwidth in terms of like giving you impressions of how much experience somebody has. Right. Um, so we typically ping pong pair here mm-hmm. usually. So like I'll write a test and then my pair will make it pass, and then my pair will write a test and I'll make it pass. Right. And so you get a chance to be sort of working both sides of that TDD cycle. Right. And. I don't think I have anything particular. I'm just kind of well, getting... we don't have different levels of developers at ThoughtBot, right? So, right. So if someone's not able to do that in a seamless way, yeah. we really don't have a place for them at ThoughtBot. Maybe the apprenticeship, and that's where we would flow them into the apprenticeship. Agreed. So that's why pair programming is really effective, because if they're not able to do that, that's the thing. they're you can... not up to the level that we would expect. Yeah, and you can, you can talk... You can kind of talk a good talk and maybe kind of BS a little bit in a mm-hmm. spoken interview pretty well, um, but when you start actually implementing real features, you can't you can't fake it. Right. Um, and that's what we do when we're when we're pairing with these candidates is like today I'm working on level up and I am implementing feature X and right. here's where I am with it and here's what I'm struggling with. Right. Um, and that that to me is I, I can't really think how could you get a better sense for how someone to work on the job than working with them on the job. Right. Uh, so. so and I think we also we look at communication. So like if someone's not able to communicate about the choices that they're making, so we also don't have project managers at Thoughtbot. So we need people to be able to communicate effectively with their team and with the customer. So communication is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think pairing shows that. Um, and then the other things we get from pairing are just sort of that feel around uh, domain modeling, the way things are put together. Whether so, often we talk to people who are not a good fit at Thoughtbot, who overbuild, who do like premature optimization, build more than they need. That's like their go-to thing, um, and so you know that can be an issue for people. Yeah, and then I've also participated in a handful of like earlier on in the screening process, like before they come in for a, mm-hmm. an actual pairing session, and in that case. Um, We'll usually we'll almost always discuss a piece of code, right. and so it's so it gives us a chance to sort of dig in, like you know, what was your motivation behind this? And like, right. What yeah, am I, a, that's important. It's a part of it's code that they've written. That they've written. Yeah, code. exactly. Yeah. And and I think one of one of my favorite questions in that is, you know, how could this be better? Right. Because 
I think you kind of, I think everyone that is passionate about this is kind of always trying to think about that. Right. Like you always have a little bit, a little corner of the code that you're not super psyched about. Right. It's like, well, I do have this concern with this. I don't quite love the way that name is. And so sometimes I see people that don't really have a good answer for that question. And it's like, are you sure that this code is flawless? Like you can't, right. nothing about this rings any, you know, right. bothers you at all. That to me is sort of a big red flag. Right. And so in the non-technical portion of the interview, which is really the first step, um, part of what I see doing is, is setting expectations, and I, I answer a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. So lots of people who are interested in working in ThoughtBot, essentially they, they have a lot of questions. They may not be intimately familiar with the actual work that we do. They're really familiar with all the open source and all those kinds of things. So they're really interested in in the kinds of work we do for clients and and all that stuff. So I answer a lot of those questions. And but that's one thing I look for in that interview. I, you know, I I don't say this to people, but like if someone's not interested in the way that we work or doesn't have an opinion, like oftentimes they're asking those questions like do you pair program? Not because they're genuinely curious or or not just because they're curious, but because they actually want to be in a place where they're allowed to pair program. Mm -hmm. And they're choosing to come potentially work at ThoughtBot because they're ready to leave their current job because they don't do test-driven development. They don't get to pair program. They don't get to practice software development in the way that they think. Mm -hmm. Same thing goes is true for the designers. So the process for designers and the process for like what the interview and what we look for is largely the same, only just with a different set of skills. Mm. Also, I, I just I want to address real quick that in that question, his last the last part of the question was, "What are your metrics?" And this might be this is probably something that's been gone over before, but I don't think there are really any good metrics for measuring developer skill. Yeah, we don't do that. Yeah, like I don't think you can really boil development down to a number. Most things you can, but especially that. Like I. I uh, two jobs ago, I worked at a company that measured you on bugs per month. And like, anytime you start measuring somebody on that, they're going to try to start gaming that right. system. So well, also that wouldn't work because we just, we don't make any bugs. Right? Certainly. So yeah, mine's been at zero since I joined. Right. Yeah. So just, just be, maybe that was just bad wording on his part, but, but be aware of, be wary, wary of uh, trying to assign a number to something like that. Right. And the pair programming is the best way that we, we have to be able to do that without metrics. Totally. Um, Another uh, question from Chris O'Brien. What have you guys found to be the sweet spot for meetings in terms of quantity? So really, I think the sweet spot for meetings is zero. Um, And then you need to realize that that's unrealistic. So what's the pragmatic answer Mm -hmm. from there? Um, And the reason why I say the sweet spot is zero is because the goal is to have so much communication among your team that you don't need meetings. Like if you were to get together and have a meeting, it'd be like, what do we have to talk about? And the meeting should be a waste of time at that mm. point. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of companies get into a cycle where that is the case. They actually have pretty good communication, but then you have these meetings which have to happen and everyone has to have their say around the table and you get people in the meetings who are not intimately involved in the work. So that's that's what what we do is everyone who, in an ideal world, Everyone who is involved in the project is involved in everything. And when you do have a meeting that's important, it should involve everyone. Mm. Um, and uh, so what we do is we do daily stand-ups, which is technically a meeting. Um, and we talk. Um, we do a big company-wide stand-up where we say interesting things we learned or something interesting we did the day before or plan on doing that day. And then we break up into the individual project teams and they do a project stand-up um, where they talk more specifically about the project, what they did yesterday, what they plan on doing today, and whether anything is blocking them. That whole stand-up process for you know 20 people, sometimes uh, depending on who's in the office, maybe only 10 people, takes three minutes. Um, it's very quick. And then the only other fixed meeting we have is a weekly retrospective meeting for every project. Um, and in that retrospective, we uh, review the work that was done in the week, and we review the work that's going to be upcoming. Um, but before that, we talk about how people felt throughout the course of the week and whether there are any concerns, mm-hmm. risks, or um, things that the team would like to try to do better uh, exper- or experiment with, mm-hmm. even if it's not better. Just, hey, let's try this out next week. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, and uh, I actually, I really have have grown fond of those retrospectives. Like I've mm-hmm. I've worked on clients where um, we're at their office or we're we're working on their process. So they don't do them, and I've worked right. on clients where we do do them. And I actually think they're extremely useful. Like they keep you honest, and I think that also getting that what they keep you honest because it's like, what'd you do this week? And right. if you can't point to the stuff you've shipped, you know, you feel like a jerk. So it sort of right. keeps you keeps you on track. Right. It keeps you from getting off in the weeds or blocked. Um, and also, I think that sharing of concerns is really good. Right. Like if there's if there's anything that's worth bringing everybody to talk about, everybody together to talk about something, I think it's that. Right. And actually, in an ideal world, your your goal is to address those concerns in that retrospective. So uh, the team, if there's a lot of concerns we'll typically choose like, okay, let's try to address the top three for next week. Um, but that typically doesn't happen on our teams. Uh, the, you know, you may have one to three concerns and you typically address them in that meeting. And addressing doesn't mean solving. It just means, okay, let's agree as a group what we're going to do to uh, address the problem in the next week or right after this meeting or whatever. Um, and you use the phrase, keeping it keeps you honest i think it keeps you honest in terms of communication as well because you have an outlet for expressing any concerns or risks that you see mm-hmm. to the entire team that is involved each week mm. and so i you know as someone who sees like what goes on in the life cycle of a project i never want to be in a scenario where at the end of a project someone says oh, i knew that all along like and and never said anything about right. it right like you had an opportunity every week and the expectation is that you don't uh th- that you don't save stuff uh, or that you don't keep things to yourself so i really try when i run the retrospectives try to foster totally open honest communication anything is possible to be said in that meeting down to like you know this doesn't really happen but like i don't like it when you do this like mm-hmm. you know that should be okay yeah um and uh and and I think it works well. It, it's evolved quite a bit since we first started doing them, but but uh, but that's the core. Mm. And so those are the only things we have. And then people, you know, design. You know, they they might be working on something specific. So every meeting after that is essentially ad hoc. Um, it's just like, hey, we're working on this thing. Let's set a time, one p.m. tomorrow, to talk about it if we need to get together. Got it. Uh, one other question uh, from. Uh I'm just going to W-R-I-T-E-S-A-U is his Twitter handle. And he asks, what is the best, best dev development cycle for a one to two dev team for a weekend project? Yeah. That's kind of a generic, a general question. I like, thought what? this question was interesting because he's speci- I'm like, oh, best development cycle for a one to two dev team. Okay. And then it says add a weekend project. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, the only example I really have is uh, rails rumble. Right. Me too. And, um, you know, that is when you throw in the concept of a weekend project, there are certain things very different about that. So you're going to work basically nonstop for the, over the course of 48 hours. So there's no like uh cycle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that's like, you can sort of put a cycle in, but I don't know what it was. And the projects I've been on, the, the rails rumble teams I've been on, it's just, you know, we're basically all working together as one unit. Um, and then certain things are not at all different. So on our Rails Rumble project, everyone that I've been on, fully test-driven, um, fully, um, you know, everything is the same. Yeah. Um, and so I think overall probably, though, there is some general flow. So that is pretty consistent across our projects and across Rails Rumble. You'd start with wireframes and design and um, figure out what you're actually going to build and then start to build it, and then go to staging, and then uh, go to production. Yeah, uh, I've done. I did one Rails Rumble and, and sort of had the same thing. We still took breaks for lunch and went to dinner right, and all that, right. and like got some sleep and all that. But it just, I guess, if there was one thing, it was that we were pretty aggressive about cutting functionality as we started getting closer to the deadline. Right. It was like, there's just no way this is going to happen. What can we do that's way simpler? Right. And that mentality, I think, helped us. We had some good success with that. So yeah, and actually, it's funny that that you mentioned that because. I've said in the past in like kickoff meetings and everything, I haven't said it in a little while, but like people who I, who I know have been involved in Rails Rumble, I say the Rails Rumble should not be any different like in terms of cutting features and all that stuff. That's exactly what we should be doing just over a slightly decompressed time frame. Mm-hmm. And our time frames for going from idea to concept to refining the concept to launch 
tend to be about four to eight weeks for a typical project of a designer and two developers. And so um, when you take the number of work hours, um, that like in Rails Rumble, the, if you're working nonstop, it's like 48 hours mm -hmm. for that team. So it's obviously uh, much decompressed, but it's not that much. You know, if we're talking about launching in four weeks, uh, it, it should be just as serious and frenetic and um, okay, ruth ruthless. Yeah, as Rails Rumble. Yeah, and I think that that leads to prod product success. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I I encourage people to take that with them that mm -hmm. sort of mentality. Cool. Um, that wraps up the questions. Usually at this uh, phase of the podcast, I ask the guests if they have anything to plug. We've plugged about like five different, uh, this is all thought about all the time. So I think you're over your quota. Yeah. And I, I hope people enjoy this episode. It's a little different. I, you know, we don't do news on this podcast. So we don't talk about this sort of stuff all the time. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I, I found it enjoyable to go back and reflect on the year. I hope everyone else did too. I think they will. I think it was pretty good. So um, thanks for coming by and talking. Thank I know it's a long trip for you up the stairs. Um, if you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash podcasts slash 30. Uh, today's podcast was recorded by, well, Chad Pytel and Anna. <laughs> Anna, you get, this is your first recording credit. How do you say your last name, Anna? Mariola. Uh, it's edited by Edward Lovell and produced by the man himself, Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening. Thank you, man. Yeah.